Hi, welcome to the Mental Wellness Journey. Discover the underlying causes of your physical and emotional symptoms and finally heal. I am beyond excited to have Dr. William Walsh with us today. He um, is a giant in the field, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about him. William J. Walsh, PhD, president of the nonprofit Walsh Research Institute, is an internationally recognized expert in the field of nutritional medicine and a key scientist paving the way for nutrient-based psychiatry and nutritional medicine. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Walsh has developed biochemical treatments for patients diagnosed with behavioral disorders, attention deficit disorder, autism, clinical depression, anxiety, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, and Alzheimer's disease that are used by doctors throughout the world. His book, Nutrient Power, Heal Your Biochemistry and Heal Your Brain, describes the evidence-based nutrient therapy system system. In addition to his ongoing research studies, he leads medical practitioner training programs and advanced drug-free biochemical nutrient therapies in Australia, Ireland, Norway, the United States, and other countries. He's frequently an invited guest lecturer, having given more than 200 presentations at regional, national, and international conferences and symposiums, including the American Psychiatric Association, the U.S. Senate, National Institutes of Mental Health. He has authored numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and scientific reports, as well has been um, oh, granted five patents. So again, I am beyond excited to have Dr. Walsh here. And who better to explain, um, I'm going to say his theories that have proven out in work than him himself. Um, there, I often talk about pyroluria, and he he um, reduces um, mental illnesses into different subtypes that is completely different than anything you've been exposed to before. So I'm going to ask um, Dr. Walsh, how would you help me out in trying to... Um, describe your wealth of knowledge to people. What well, um, pyroluria or the basically uh, it's, we, I started small. I started trying to understand why some people are criminals and have violence. And I started off as a volunteer at a, at a local penitentiary, stateful <laughs> prison. And after a few years of doing this and, and, uh, and, and running an ex-offender program, helping ex-convicts, this is when I was really young, I began to realize that from the families, they were telling me that, that, the, that the, these children that wound up so terribly that they were born, that they were different. The mothers would say the child was different from the time they were one year old and they were shocked by what the, the baby was doing. And they may have had other family, other, other children who were fine. They might've seemed like, you know, really caring, loving parents and yet disaster struck. So that's, that's really how I began. And working with the great Carl Pfeiffer and Abram Hoffer years and years and years ago, I started amassing a really big chemistry database. And I found out that, the, their blood and urine and tissue chemistries were different from the rest of the population. They, they were, in fact, were born with, with, with predispositions for these conditions. And the imbalances that we found have a lot to do with neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. So what we've found, what, what we've, over the years, what we've learned is that, is that there are, 
a handful, really only about six or seven key nutrients out of the hundreds of nutrients that have a really powerful effect on neurotransmitters. The, the neurotransmitters we are focusing on are serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA, and then most recently, NMDA. There's a lot of information and new research on NMDA that is really helping us learn how we can help people with problems like OCD, even even heroin addiction, and and um, forms of schizophrenia. It, the, the new science out there is quite amazing, and it's not really um, talked about much. I mean, usually when I go to places like the APA annual meetings, mm-hmm. the focus really is what new medications do we have that might help our patients? The focus is, I guess, in research is trying to find the next billion-dollar drug rather than focusing your attention on what's really going on in the brain. What are the mechanisms that are causing these these disorders? And uh, I think there's a big lag now in in all the information that's out there and getting that, you know, into... Into, into, into treatment and into clinical work. So we've learned, we've learned that uh, we learned a lot about behavior. Uh, if, 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 a, if a family has a six or seven or eight year old with violent behavior, uh, those used to be our favorite patients because they're really easy. It's quite easy to die, to identify what the problem is. And, and they usually respond quite well based on outcome studies. My database is huge. I've got more than well, I have um, millions of lab results I've collected over the years. I, I'm really very old, and so I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, we, I have uh, data on more than 10,000 violent children and adults, including quite a few very violent people. And I've tested, actually interviewed and tested uh, some of the most violent people in the world, including Charles Manson and Richard Speck and... I could go on and on, and and I, I like to do that because you get such such a strong uh, abnormal chemistries, and you can learn more from those kinds of examples. And we have this, uh, at one point I had the world's largest database for autism, with more than six thousand five hundred patients we had evaluated, and then there's also schizophrenia, depression, whatever. Um, I've been going to the annual meetings of the APA. I love those meetings. I mean, there are all these caring, wonderful psychiatrists like. 17 or 18,000 psychiatrists from all over the world trying to learn how they can better help their patients. Um, uh, about three years ago, I went there uh, and gave a, a talk before a huge auditorium group, uh, basically telling them that they're doing depression wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were nice to me. Uh, but basically, <laughs> my, I, have this, I think I've got the world's biggest chemistry database for people with clinical depression. And what I find from my database is they, it's, depression is a name, I call it an umbrella term, <laughs> used to describe at least five completely different disorders. And, and, and uh, these different disorders have, um, uh, they involve different misbehaving neurotransmitters. And each one of them needs a, a targeted specific treatment uh, Looking at the ones who are helped with um, with antidepressants, um, my data shows that 52% of, of today's uh, uh, depressed population, at least in the USA, um, actually are benefited from them because uh, part of their problem is they have low activity at serotonin receptors. 
and, and, and antidepressants do a pretty nice job of, of increasing that. Um, however, there are other forms of, of depression. Uh, for example, um, what I call low folate depression. Uh, these are the people who get worse if you give them uh, an antidepressant. And I, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of them. And basically, uh, what they suffer from is not too little activity at, 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 at serotonin receptors, but they suffer from excessive activity at dopamine and norepinephrine. And, there is, and they need a completely different direction of treatment. So, uh, so when, I, when I gave this talk at, at, at APA, um, it really worked out quite well. The, um, the, 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 at the end of the talk, I was one of four speakers. I thought the other four speakers gave really interesting talks. But they invited uh, people from the audience to come up and talk to the speakers afterwards. And there was like a large number just came rushing up. And I was kind of embarrassed because they all wanted to talk to me. And they wanted to learn more about this. And um, we, we have a, a training program uh, that we've been doing now for many years. And we've now, we now have more than 800 doctors, including getting close to 100 psychiatrists now, by the way. Our most enthusiastic doctors are the psychiatrists. And what we teach them to do is we teach them how to do inexpensive lab work where they can identify which neurotransmitters are misbehaving. And it can guide them to a proper treatment targeted to those specific people. We, for example, we found that 17%, 17% of all American um, depressives that we saw, um, they, their problem is a metal metabolism disorder. They, they are born with, they have an inability to regulate trace metals, copper and zinc. And, and so what happens is after a pregnancy, during a, a normal pregnancy, your, your a woman's copper level more than doubles, and that's necessary for the growing fetus because it, it gives you, uh, pr promotes angiogenesis and development and rapid development of, of, of vascularization. And so the problem is that, that these women now have really high copper levels. Well, copper has a dramatic impact on dopamine and norepinephrine, and it's right out of the textbooks. And if you have high, unusually high copper levels in your blood, you're going to have extraordinarily high norepinephrine levels. And that's a recipe for anxiety, depression, and in some cases, uh, schizophrenia. And, and uh, what we've learned after the hundreds of those people we've tested and done outcome studies, uh, the success rate is more than 90%. And uh, sometimes those problems, the, the, um, the postpartum depression can linger for 20 or 30 years. So that, those are, that's an example of, of, of what we do. Uh, we, we now work with behavior disorders, ADHD, we consider them to be the easy people to help. Mm -hmm. Easy because it's relatively easy to identify what's gone wrong, and the treatments are usually relatively effective on most of them. We can't help everybody, but we, uh, we um, for, for violent children, for example, that's one of our easiest groups, children with extraordinary violence. Uh, the outcome studies show that we're around 90% successful in changing their lives. And um, now most of the patients we see are on medication and a lot of the medications have, have provided them with some benefits. What we do is we insist they stay on the medication and we do both treatments together. We normalize their, their imbalances that affect their brain function and do both together. And after about three or four months, 
hopefully there's a, a new situation, a new reality. And then we try very cautiously weaning away the medication, really trying to find the optimum dosage of the, of the psychiatric medication. And 80% of the depressive patients say, and also the ADHD and behavior patients, they say they're at their best with zero medication. About 20% say that if they go all the way off their medication, they lose something and they're not as well. And we say, so be it. I mean, uh, we are not opposed to medication. Psychiatric medications have helped millions of people. I've met people who told me basically that that antidepressants have saved their lives. And I've met um, so many schizophrenics and bipolar patients who said they they, they couldn't function without their medication. But we find that you can also really help people um, by if they have a chemical imbalance related to something simple like a nutrient that is abnormal and, and messing up their, their brain function, uh, we, can, we can certainly do that part of the problem and get that corrected. And very often that's the major problem in, in some of the more... When I was in... When I was in residency training, they talked about chemical imbalances, but it wasn't anything specific. And so what you're talking about are honest-to-goodness imbalances um, that, and to do something specific about it, yeah. which is different than I was. It was just sort of a, a general term, chemical imbalance, and the medicine should help with it. Um, but yes, and a lot of times I, the medicine helps, but a lot of times I see the medicine doesn't help. And I believe what they meant by chemical balance, they were thinking of the chemical serotonin and dopamine and the yeah. major neurotransmitters, of which there's more than 100 of them. Um, what we're talking about are other imbalances, the imbalances in these six or seven nutrients. Uh, there's only six or seven that really dominate mental health, and, which is really nice because you don't, you know, there's more, there's hundreds of nutrients. Isn't it nice that we don't have to do chemical studies to check out all hundred of them? That would be impossible. And, and then to develop treatments to normalize dozens of them. We, we usually, with, with our patients, we usually find just one or two or three imbalances that need to be addressed. So it's really not expensive. And, and uh, I think it's all nicely science-based. Help me put together, if you can, well, I'm sure you can, um, you talk about methylation, either too little or too much. And, uh, you know, the rage is all about a specific gene called MTHFR. And people, you know, come in quite frightened because they have this genetic abnormality. Um, How do you explain that to people and how that fits in? It all has to do with these things called SNPs single nucleotide polymorphism, which is a mouthful to say, but SNPs. And what a SNP is, is when uh, a, a protein, an expressed, genetically expressed protein, like MTHFR, and there are so many of them. In fact, we got 21,000 genes, and every gene's got one job. It has to make one particular protein. And one of these genes makes MTHFR. Well, MTHFR has got 5,000 amino acids. It's kind of a complex <laughs> there are hundreds of SNPs in MTHFR, but only a couple of them are located in, 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 along that molecule where it really impacts brain function. For example, the one that's famous is the 677T polymorphism. Well, what does that mean? It means that one of the amino acids is out of place. That's all it means. That's what a polymorphism is. And, and most polymorphisms don't affect anything. 
Some of them can be really powerful, and the MTHFR, that particular one, can actually shut down that enzyme, that important enzyme in the methylation cycle by two-thirds. So they can, they can be really important. But, and, and it's becoming all the rage now to do genetic testing, and mm -hmm. you know, especially with respect to the methylation cycle. The problem is, it's only half the problem. That's, that's, you, you cannot diagnose and treat people based on the genetic information, the SNPs alone. And the reason is that it ignores epigenetics. Now, what is epigenetics? Um, what, what, what the gene studies do with the MTH, the 23andMe and those, they tell you about the quality of the proteins that are being produced. What epigenetics tells you is the rate of gene expression of the proteins. And you need to know both. You need to put, fold that together. Otherwise, you'll often get the wrong answer. For example, a lot of, a lot of my good friends and many, many really dedicated uh, therapists, um, if they find a patient with EMTHFR, they want to give them boatloads of methylfolate. Mm -hmm. They better not do that because they're going to harm so many people. And the reason is that, the yes, if you give folate, and B12 to an undermethylated person, that's the gold standard treatment to elevate methylation. However, folate has a tremendous impact on expression on, on, on serotonin activity. Folate, because of epigenetics, mm -hmm. goes straight to those genetically expressed proteins that they call reuptake proteins. They're the reuptake proteins that form the passageways in the presynaptic neurons, you know, and, and allow reuptake. And, and uh, what folate does is it's a serotonin reuptake promoter. And these, uh, these depressed, undermethylated people need More. serotonin reuptake inhibition. That's why SSRIs work. Right. And, and so uh, it, there are so many people now falling in love with the genetic studies. And, and you get really solid, good information. There, it's, it's really great. Uh, as far as chemically determining what's, what's going, you know, the quality of these important proteins. Um, but you have to consider the epigenetic effect. And, and that's really part of the training we do is make sure that, that our, our really intelligent doctors like Dr. Goldman here are able to understand and, and then help their patients based on this information. Right. I hope that's, it's a complicated subject. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's clear and clear. <laughs> It's extremely complicated and um, it takes quite a while to understand it. And I, what I'm just trying to say is just because you have this one gene doesn't automatically mean you should take lots and lots of L-methylfolate. Um, that's all. Absolutely. There's a lot more to it. No, actually, it would probably help about two-thirds of the people to do it. Uh, it depends on whether they have a serotonin issue. If, you, if, if a person uh, doesn't have a serotonin problem and they're under-methylated, They'll, they might flourish on methylfolate, and a lot of them do. For example, most, autist, most autistics uh, are undermethylated, mm -hmm. but most of them don't have a serotonin issue as their major issue. So they, many of them just thrive and get better on methylfolate. So really, if a person has low serotonin activity, and, and because of that, perhaps they have uh, extraordinary depression or anxiety or OCD, mm -hmm. believe me, if you give them folates, what happens is their methylation will improve. The patient will get dramatically worse. That's 
the understanding that we, we now have. We didn't have that understanding 10 years ago. It's all based on this new, the new research and science of epigenetics that's making everything so much more clear and understandable. Let me um, also, now I'm being selfish because I'm asking for me, but um, neurotransmitters made in the brain versus in the gut. Um, And how do you measure if somebody's low serotonin? Okay, this is something that is for the last uh, 20, 25 years, it goes up and down in terms of popularity. And (laughs) about 25 years ago, I had a colleague at, at doing research at the University of Chicago, and he was studying uh, serotonin kinetics in, in, in blood cells and, uh, and relating that to their mental health. And I jumped into that like he did, and we did a lot of studies. And what we found was really disappointing. We found that the first, – first of all, let's look at serotonin. Two-thirds of your serotonin is made in your GIT, GI tract. Right. You'd think, wow, that could be really important in evaluating serotonin in a human being. Well, no, none of that serotonin gets to the brain. None of it. And and even today, there are quite a few labs that are doing serotonin analysis in urine and in blood. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely has no relation to what's going on in the brain. The brain serotonin is made in the Rafe nuclei. And by a different mechanism, and and the unfortunately, those systems are totally separate. Now, the 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 lab tests are doing on blood and urine for serotonin. They might be helpful for studying the GI tract or the immune system. They have no relation to what's going on in the brain, and there's just so many people that don't understand that. It's too bad. No, it is unfortunate, and part of the series is to you know, help people understand more. So when you say somebody has low serotonin or a serotonin issue that contributes to the depression, um, is that a blood test? Is that symptoms? How do you determine that? Okay. Um, blood test doesn't help. Um, it, it, um, if we were looking at cerebral spinal fluid, I think we'd get some valid information, but uh, I almost never find a family or even a doctor that <laughs> really wants to do that. Right. Uh, so, so really, we're, we're left with symptoms and traits and, and this thing called methylation. We now know quite clearly that people who are under-methylated have, have insufficient serotonin activity. We know that. That's, that's, that's related. And, and uh, for, for one thing, uh, one piece of evidence is they're the ones that, that improve if you give them an SSRI. Um, and we understand why undermethylation, because of epigenetics, causes too much expression of reuptake proteins. So you have too many passageways at the synapse for your serotonin molecules to go back into the original presynaptic neuron. And so we now understand that really clearly, and that that's and that that's why methylation is related mainly to serotonin activity. Another thing that's really interesting to me is um, nobody even worried about serotonin and, and what's going on at receptors or any of that until about 1965. And you're probably too young to remember that, um, to have experienced that. But uh, up until that time, everybody was they thought it was all related to life experiences and traumatic events and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So once they realized uh, with 
the twin studies and these really beautiful studies that came out in the 60s. And, and it was clear there were these things called chemical imbalances and neurotransmitter issues. Um, people started focusing on the amount of neurotransmitter. So if they wanted to increase, if they wanted to increase serotonin activity in a, say in somebody who's got low serotonin activity and might have a mental illness, um, they were, they, 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 well, first of all, people were trying to give things like the precursors, like tryptophan, et cetera, that would increase the amount of serotonin in the brain, and, which they would do somewhat. And then the, the, the pharmaceutical companies were properly trying to find ways to do the same thing. So that's why they developed MAO inhibitors, because all they do is increase the amount of serotonin in the brain. But 30 years ago, right around 1985, the neuroscientists of the world and the pharmaceutical companies found something really important. The amount of serotonin in the brain is relatively unimportant in neurotransmission. It's reuptake that dominates. It's about the 90% effect. So the, the, real, the, the real name of the game to really help a patient with low serotonin activity is to inhibit reuptake. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, like a ninety percent effect compared to the ten five or ten percent effect of of taking tryptophan or doing or, or doing whatever you can to increase the amount of serotonin. So that's an important understanding. But that's thirty years ago, and there's so many people that still don't get it. They don't get it. They they're doing whatever they can to increase serotonin. Like people do the twenty three and Me and methylation studies. They know that that there are that 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 there are treatments you can give including the folates, that will increase the amount of serotonin somewhat. It's a negligible effect. They just don't know that. They don't realize that that very therapy knocks serotonin activity down yeah. a lot because of reuptake. So that's the sort of thing we get involved with. It's, it's really wonderful to know all of this now. I mean, we know so much more now than we did 10 years ago. And we're so much better able to help, help patients than we could 10 years ago. Methylation, how... How does somebody know if they're overmethylated, undermethylated? Um, because those can cause several different conditions. Um, or, or um, I call it you methylation, normally methylated. How do people discover that? That's something that we can test for. Okay. And also, there are clear symptoms related to it. We know the classic symptoms of if you had 100 people who were undermethylated, compared it to people who had normal methylation and those that were overmethylated, and there are such people, uh, we now know that there are symptoms and traits directly related. But there's also blood testing. For example, um, there are about 80 or 90 really important biochemical reactions that require methyl, um, that are methylation reactions. One of them, just one convenient one, has been histamine, whole blood histamine. Whole blood histamine is regulated by methylation reaction. That's how it's metabolized. And, and so if a person has um, high levels of blood histamine, it correlates quite nicely with undermethylation. Because if they had more methyl, then they would have lower levels of the histamine. And so that's been used for about 40, 50 years. Um, but it's not a perfect test. It's affected by antihistamines and, and things. And, 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 very- and now there's another lab test that came out recently from uh, doctor's data in Illinois, where they do a, a separate test that was based on research by, by um, Dr. Jill James, who is a methylation scientist down south. 
and and now we have a we have an, another blood test that is not perfect, but it gives a really good indication not only of whether a person is under methylated, normal, or overmethylated. It can tell their methyl status, but it also tells you why because they test a lot of different parts of the methylation cycle. And so we have we have we have lab testing. The 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 aspect that people don't realize is that methylation is incredibly important in the nine months of gestation. And the the what happens is that uh, during that nine months, uh, every gene either is or is not aided or suppressed by methylation. So your DNA develops these methyl bookmarks during that nine months. And, and if you're under-methylated, it affects more than just your methylation capability when you're born. It affects your personality. It affects, it affects so many aspects of, of life. It tends to make you more slender. People who are, who are under-methylated tend to be uh, perfectionistic, and they tend to be competitive. Nine, 75% of them have seasonal allergies. Only 8% of over-methylated people do. There's all these other characteristics because of what happened during the nine months before they were born. And, and so that gives us a really good capability. We now know what, what those uh, characteristics are. And so the way to evaluate methyl, methyl status is to do a good medical history through the symptoms and traits. And that can give you a really idea. In fact, you can almost predict their blood test once you know that, but then also do the lab work. And then I think we, we now can confidently uh, state and diagnose whether a person has normal or abnormal methylation. And there are treatments directly for it. Right. If you've got an over-methylated schizophrenic, if you have an over-methylated schizophrenic, uh, we, we know that their biggest problem will be excessive dopamine activity. And, and uh, however, if they have, if they're under-methylated, they don't have a dopamine problem. They shouldn't be taking dopamine uh, depressing medications like the atypical antipsychotics, they've got an NMDA issue. And what they need to do is take have therapies at lower activity at glutamate activity at NMDA. Uh, it's now becoming very more and more clear. And unfortunately, um, the field of psychiatry uh, still is always trying to find, of course, are trying to find ways to help their patients. And, and what they're mostly familiar with and most of the work research going on is trying to find new and better medications, which would be wonderful. But it doesn't really get to the core of the issue. It doesn't, they don't normalize the brain. Um, um, what we're doing is we're putting very powerful chemicals that are foreign to the body into the brain that might help with a symptom or two, but they're always going to have side effects and they're, and they're, and they're not going to promote normality. The, the, the future, I'm convinced that 20, 30 years, I don't know how long it's going to take, I think the use of medications is going to fade away from society. And I think the neuroscience research, which is just exploding so beautifully, I think that's going to show us how we can normalize the brain and help people with these severe problems. Um, and not create. Without medication, although if the medication will work, I'm all for it. And maybe the combination, maybe it'll still be a bit of both. But I think I think our dependence on medication is going to shrink. Now, it's going to be hard to have that happen. There are so many massive, huge companies that are making billions of dollars. Uh, they're not going to really support this work, I don't think. It's not good for their, their, their uh, stockholders. Um, so yeah. with, 
that's why I think a charity like mine is is probably an ideal way to uh, get this get the ball rolling and get this understanding into society. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because, um, you know, you want to promote mental health and people not being ashamed or stigmatized for having anxiety and depression or schizophrenia, but at the same time understand that medicines can do a lot of damage as well. Um, you know, um, the, the best we've had in the past, but we're understanding more and more. And... It, it, it's tough for people. I'm it is tough. We, we, we now know in the uh, literature, uh, in the psychiatric literature, we now know that the atypicals, yeah. um, of which there are now the, the main line in schizophrenia, we now know that they tend to shrink the brain. They tend to cause lower cortex volumes, and it's related to dosage and the length of time they take it. And and uh, that's one of the reasons, I think, that if he's, if we have a uh, a schizophrenic who's been ill for just a year or two, uh, then it's really relatively easy to help them compared to somebody who's been ill for 60 years. I mean, the treatments, uh, all the treatments just seem to do nothing for them. And I think what's happened is the cumulative effect of, of the medication has forever changed them. Yes. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. We had some computer issues, but the simplicity, um, of the human body and things don't have to be complicated and need to have our mass of, um, you know, complex medications, you know, just, it's frustrating because the older I get as a clinician, the patient's history will tell you what's wrong and go down back to basics. And it's about, you know, what we put on our body or what our body can't, doesn't have. So, I agree 150% with nutrient power. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, it's sometimes in, in psychiatry and other fields of science, uh, progress moves with what I call glacial speed, like an inch a century. It's so hard to take the momentum of a huge um, um, system of, of medical care and if, if you learn something that, that really is a, is a major improvement, it takes a long time really to get that accepted, especially if there are, are organizations out there making billions of dollars on, on the present way of doing it on mainstream therapy. And if something new comes along, um, it's not the easiest thing to get that accepted. Yeah. So beyond frustrating because things haven't changed since I've been in residency training and it's been quite a long time so now they're doing studies on just your diet can that help yeah, diet can help a lot of people uh well, testing we do can identify what is the proper diet for people and, and that also is is has biochemical individuality for example an undermethylated person mm-hmm. most of them thrive on a protein-based diet mm-hmm. however if you're overmethylated, these same people would thrive on a vegetarian diet so we'll, uh, people are uniquely different. And I think that's one thing we're learning is to understand what a person's biochemical individuality is, the way there are extraordinary uh, differences in every human being. And we're understanding why. And it has a lot to do with gene expression, has a lot to do with genetics, but also equally as much epigenetics. And then it has to do with environmental insults that can, again, alter all of that. Yes. 
you're just a treasure trove of information and I know um, ahead of your time. So I really, really appreciate um, you sharing what you know. And I, you know, I am so thankful that you're educating physicians too. I just, I want you to do it faster and more, but, um, um, but more and more people need to, to know. If there was one thing you could have people remember um, from this um, time together, what would be the one line um, that you'd have them understand or remember? Well, I think for, first of all, um, there's a reason for everything. So if a person has a depression or anxiety or whatever, there's a reason. And I think we're, we're getting very close to understanding how to identify these reasons and how to help people. And, and um, sometimes people will say, what, if I could only take one vitamin, what should I take? Well, I can't answer that because uh, one thing we learned early on is that the biggest surprise I had early on was I used to think that people just had deficiencies that were causing problems. And, and yeah, if you do a complete metabolic study of a human being like yourself or me, you'll find that there are maybe five or six nutrients that because of genetics, you're low in, and you would benefit from many times the RDA because you're fighting genetics. But the big surprise was that the greatest mischief in mental health are nutrients you have that are in overload. Mm -hmm. And that's why just taking a multiple vitamin is a very bad idea if you're trying if you're trying to help somebody with a serious brain disorder uh, because there are things in there that would harm them as well as those that would help them. So you have to find out what a person's biochemical individuality is, and, and with rifle shot precision, you've got to normalize their chemistry. I guess that's the summary of it all. Uh, if you wanted to, if if you wanted to uh, tell the general population, what can I do to help myself? I think the answer is antioxidants. Mm -hmm. They can do nothing but help you. They can protect your, your DNA. They can help protect you against cancer, mental illness, et cetera. And I, I, I've never come across anybody who had a problem with an overload of antioxidant capability. Mm -hmm. um, so taking things like vitamin C, vitamin E, selenium, um, and acetylcysteine, uh, I think that that's, I think, eventually I think the entire population uh, will be doing that because the, the medical medical establishment will learn that that is a something that pretty much always helps everybody. Now some people would need it. They might be creating more expensive urine, but I think a lot of people would be helped by it. Yeah. It's, no, thank you so much. Now your website where you have a lot more resources, resources and you can connect people to people that you've trained near them is walshinstitute.org? Walshinstitute.org, and it's got a lot of uh, lectures, a lot of information. It gives a list of, uh, of, of quite a few of the doctors who've asked to be, you know, listed. And uh, our next training program is going to be in uh, Evanston, Illinois in April uh, of next year. Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to that. I think I've got a training program that's going to happen rather quickly in uh, uh, our first attempt in, uh, in Vienna, Austria, by the way, and oh. and we're going to be in uh, late March in Melbourne, Australia, with maybe 80, 85 more doctors. So we just keep at it. And your book, where you talk about all this, is in Nutrient Power. Yeah, uh, I wrote that really. I tried to write that, so it would be very interesting and useful to sci scientists, doctors, 
but I also tried to write it so that the uh, average person in society could read it and, and get, get a lot out of it. And I'm not sure I completely succeeded. Some people say their brain freezes over when I get to chapter four, but um, <laughs> we use it as a textbook and it's, there's nothing in there now still after several years that I think is not correct. And uh, it's now in seven languages. Oh, wow. There's, there's an Indo- Indonesian version. Oh, my <laughs> and, and we're getting more and more uh, uh, language versions of it. And I'm told it's, a, it's been a bestseller in Germany and Japan. Um, anyway, it's, it's trying to get the word out about the power of nutrients and how, how that is a weapon, another weapon in the arsenal of a, of a medical, medical practitioner. It's just another weapon. And I think a very effective weapon that, that, that you can use to help a patient with a mental problem. No, I think that's great. It's brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And um, we'll sign off for now. Right. Thank you. Good talking to you.